Welcome to Thirst Watch, a self-explanatory podcast. I'm Saffron, and I'm here with my co-host, Peyton. Hey. Each episode, one of us picks a film we've watched for a celebrity crush, and then we discuss both the actor in question and the film's narrative and themes. This episode is Saffron's pick, and we're talking about Norman Jewison's Only You, starring Robert Downey Jr. and Marissa Tomei. The film follows Faith, an engaged woman who sets off for Italy in pursuit, in pursuit of her soulmate, a man she's never seen or met, but knows via Ouija board that his name is Damon Bradley. So Saffron, why did you pick Only You? Only You is an interesting pick for me based on the other picks I have lined up for the podcast and the ones we've done so far. Um, It's a movie that I didn't go into as a thirst watch. Most movies that I would categorize as thirst watches are ones that I've specifically watched for a certain actor versus this one I watched because I wanted something rom-commy, a bit shitty. <laughs> and I ended up picking this because the plot line just sounded ridiculous. And oh my God, what a thirst watch it <laughs> ended up being. I love Marissa Tomei and Robert Downey Jr. in this. I feel like rarely do two people look that good on screen together. It's rare now, especially. I think in the 90s, you would have these like picturesque looking rom-coms. And I miss that. But yeah, I love it. Totally. And I mean, going into this, I have never, like Robert Downey Jr., like in my radar is literally just like Mr. Marvel, just like Iron Man, which is kind of a shame. Um, and I mean, we can get into what Marvel does to celebrity careers, but I never found Robert Downey Jr. to be like someone where I was like, oh yeah, he's really hot. Like, I know that a lot of people felt that way, but I never subscribed to it. And then I watched this movie and I was like, oh, okay, I get I, it. I think both of us usually have the inverse of that. I always find people hotter as they get older. Um, Mm -hmm. and usually when people are like, oh, young so-and-so, like people are like young Jeff Goldblum or whatever. I've never really understood that because I just find them better looking now. But Robert Downey Jr. is interesting because I look at him in the nineties and I'm like, wow, what a guy, what a man, especially in this movie. Um, Yeah. 100%. And yeah, Marissa Tomei as well. Just the pair of them and also like you said he's Mr. Marvel and now Marissa Tomei is part of the MCU which again for better for worse in my (laughs) humble opinion for worse even though I really like her and I want her to get that check I don't think that Marvel is an especially productive vehicle for people's careers outside of just like financial gain yeah I just think it's crazy that Marvel kind of takes actors and turns them into like monolithic figures that are known for one thing and one thing only and it's whatever superhero that they've played because if you look at Robert Downey Jr's filmography like pre-Marvel there's like a lot of indie stuff in there there's a lot of like really good stuff in there but I would instantly think of him as Iron Man and I feel like that goes with everyone else in the Marvel franchise as well. Yeah, it's easy to forget that a lot of the actors are like properly acclaimed, very talented, just because the subject matter of the films, even people who like them, I think can kind of agree to an extent are pretty trivial. Like they're superhero movies, they're appealing to a mass audience. We won't go on too long of a tangent about Marvel, I swear. But um, uh, the other day I was talking about doing this podcast with a friend and um, I mentioned Marissa Tomei 
And she was like, oh, you mean Aunt May? And I had to hold back <laughs> so much in that moment. Oh my gosh. I yeah. just, I can't handle her being associated solely as Aunt May. That's awful. Yeah, no, I was even, this is unrelated to Robert Dine Jr., Marissa Tomei, but kind of along the Marvel thing, was talking to this guy that I work with and I said something, I don't remember what it was, about Samuel L. Jackson and he's like Nick Fury. And no. I was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, but I mean, even that's, because I mean, Samuel L. Jackson has been in a shit ton of movies, like a ton. He has such a long, extensive career. And I don't think that there's anything like, I don't want it to seem like I'm up on a soapbox being like, oh, you only know people from Marvel. Like, I think, like, I get it because Marvel is such a big cultural thing, but it blows my mind sometimes. Yeah, I think, like you said, because it's such a big cultural phenomenon, it's so easy to wash away all of the other actors' filmographies and it just be so exclusive to not just Marvel, but Disney. Ooh, evil mouse. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, specifically kind of, bringing it back to only you. This was in the 90s, which Marissa Tomei won her Oscar in the 90s, right? Yeah, my cousin Benny. Yeah, and then Robert Downey Jr. had um, a very extensive career in the 90s. I think Natural Born Killers was either right before or right after this, which I don't like that movie, but very interesting role. And I know a lot of people like love that role for him. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to think that his career is kind of split between like 90s and then Marvel, where Marissa Tomei, I feel like has been a little bit more, um, I don't want to say versatile, but like in terms of what she's known for, I think it's not so dichotomous. No, I agree. I think she is, and I don't think that's particularly offensive or anything to say. I think she's a more versatile actress. I think she's done a lot more, and that's not an insult to Downey. Um, I just mm -hmm. think that she has a a broader range and she's acted on it she had like a very productive um 2000s but yeah back to only you it's an interesting film for both of them um they were in a relationship in the 90s and we assume and we hope during this era that they were in a relationship or they're <laughs> incredible actors because imagine doing this with your ex yeah ouch but yeah, so the film basically, like Peyton was saying earlier, is about this woman named Faith, played by Marissa Tomei, who is so set on the concept of soulmates and truly believes because she was once told by a Ouija board and a second time affirmed by a fortune teller that her soulmate is named Damon Bradley and that she will marry him and that's, you know, the man for her. And she fixates on that and it ends up disrupting her life. She's engaged to be married to a different man. And then she finds out that Damon Bradley is going to Italy. She gets a phone call. Her husband's uh, a doctor, a foot doctor. And she gets a phone call from a man named Damon Bradley who would like to make an appointment, but he's on his way to Italy. And she fully in a wedding dress that she's trying on for her wedding, um, hops to the airport and gets on a plane and goes to Italy. So very interesting choice. Um, how do you feel about that level of spontaneity and romance? Spontaneity and romance is great in movies. I think what, um, and I mean, we even get a hint of it. I mean, this movie's 94. It's very much made like a 90s movie. 
Um, but we even, there's a little bit of self-awareness in it through like Kate, which is Bonnie Hunt's character, um, Faith's best friend being like, this is kind of insane. Cause I don't know if you mentioned like the Ouija board that she was playing when it um, spelled out the name Damon Bradley, she was like 11 and she's like yeah. in her presumably late twenties, early thirties now, and is still hung up on this um, name. So I think the spontaneity and romance as it pertains to only you is very closely tied in with the idea of fate and destiny and true love and soulmates and that very sort of romantic worldview. Um, so in terms of how I feel about that, I think to people who know me, I'm infamously maybe unromantic in kind of my outlook on things, not in the sense that I'm like cynical by any means, but I just don't personally subscribe to the idea of like soulmates, but that there's only one person out there for you or that destiny is really a thing. Um, but yeah, what do you, what do you think? How do you, I mean, feel? I think that's a pretty healthy way to be. I think ideally that's how people should look at love because it's way too restricting to do the opposite but I'm going to go ahead and out myself for doing the opposite. I mean, I'm staunchly atheist, so I don't really believe in things being preordained or, you know, deterministic or anything like that, but I love love. Like I can be very cynical, but I love the idea. I think that's the thing. Conceptually, I love the idea of there being one person out there for you, even though I don't see that as realistic and obviously doesn't happen for so many people. Um, and I don't know, I don't necessarily believe that there's one perfect person out there for me and that I'll never be able to love anyone else. I think that I can and I have loved different people, um, but it's more like I trust I'll eventually end up with the person that I'm supposed to be with. You know what I mean? I think yeah. a lot of um, atheists or agnostics or something like that, like there is a desire to lean into something and hold on to something. So I think that's my thing is that I have some level of hope that eventually at like the end of the road, I will be where I'm supposed to be with the person I'm supposed to be with, but I don't know how that's going to happen or why that would happen either. Hmm. Yeah. But I think tying, um, or at least drawing a parallel to, if not tying religion into sort of like the idea of romanticism actually makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, I personally also identify as atheist and sometimes I cater to agnostic, but I'm like, no, I, I don't know. I'm a little wish-washy between the two of them, but I just think that my sort of worldview is very, um, by chance, like nothing is like really preordained in my sort of view of how I see things. And I think that the idea of soulmates, and I don't mean this in a way um, where I think it's a bad thing to believe in soulmates, but I think that there's sort of like this individualism that comes with believing in soulmates mm -hmm. um, that I don't subscribe to. I personally think that I could deeply be in love with and happy for the rest of my life with probably dozens of people, um, if not more in a world of 7 billion, but um, I like it in movies. I think it's fun and I think it's sweet and cute. And I also quite infamously don't watch a lot of romance movies. So I was very interested to see how this was gonna go when watching it, if I was gonna like it or not. And I actually ended up really liking it. I thought it was cute and fun, very corny and soapy, like the nineties. Um, but yeah, no, I had a good time with it. I mean, what I didn't mention in the beginning when you asked me, um, 
about why I picked the film. This is probably one of maybe four or five comfort films of mine. I watch it every time I'm sick. I turn to it a lot when I'm down. And I feel like that's interesting. If we're talking about, you know, romance and fate and destiny, why is this the film that I always turn to when I'm like really <laughs> going through it? Probably says a lot about me. Um, but yeah, definitely I latch onto, like you said, that soapiness of it. And I think it's the fact that the film is quite consciously unrealistic. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to psychoanalyze myself, but I think I know that it's unrealistic, but I, I don't want it to be. Yeah. And that's sort of the escapism of the movie in general. Um, as she literally escapes from her life in, where do they live? Does it say like what state they're in? I don't remember. It's definitely like a metropolitan. Oh, wait. Yeah. Isn't it? Isn't the whole thing like, aren't they in New Jersey? Yes. Wow. You I said that, that and it unlocked had, the memory there was a of lot him of identifying her shoes as being from New Jersey. Right, yes. Yeah. Um, but oh my God, and we talked about Don John last time. That's what I was Except there's say. no like severe Jersey accents in this that I noticed anyway. I mean, as there shouldn't be, Don John was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think also with you saying that this movie is very aware of sort of the unreality of it and the very soapy tropiness of it. There's this sort of idea of like mutual obsession that is carried throughout the entire thing. Obviously Faith is a very sort of obsessive person when it comes to love. She has this idea of what it means to be like with your soulmate, to be in true love. She's holding on to this name that she got from Ouija board when she was 11, like 20 years in the future. She's still very hung up on it. But I mean, like I said earlier, like this is very much a 90s movie. It knows it's a 90s movie, but I think it would just be fun to speculate about what this relationship that is sort of reliant on this mutual obsession because Peter's character is also pretty obsessive, how that would function in a non-cinematic space. It would be bad, dude. It would be very (laughs) bad. I think we've, we've kind of alluded to this when we were talking about it earlier. One thing I will say, though, I mildly disagree with what you said about Faith having an idea of what her romance would look like, because I think, and I could be totally wrong, but I think that, to me at least, the way that she approaches romance is very one-dimensional. She genuinely is going into this with the fact that she has a name, that she's supposed to love this person. I agree, yeah. So I think that what the actual relationship looks like is one it's not based in reality but I think even she doesn't know what it's supposed to look like because her engagement to this podiatrist is um not great he kind of he's boring he's a bit pushy he kind of very pushy (laughs) yeah a bit is a little uh, but he he kind of sucks so I think that her image of love she's supposedly in it she's getting married that's another thing is like how flippant a lot of the movies are with engagements and marriage. They'll just call them off. Like it doesn't affect anybody's life. Yeah. Uh, and this movie definitely leans into that. She announces her end. engagement over a coffee table. Yeah. And then she was like, they're like, where's your ring? She pulls it out of a bag. <laughs> like She's not even wearing it. He's like, I'm taking 24 hours to think about it. If you're ever taking 24 hours to think about it, I'm sorry. I have horrible news for you. It's not. The answer is no. The answer is no. Um, but yeah, sorry, like you were, I got derailed, but like you were saying about the idea of they are mutually obsessed with each other and in 
you know, in a film, it's fun to watch. It's hot yeah. to watch a lot of the time, but in practice, it's not great. I think it, it sets up a very like fucked up dynamic. And Definitely. I think you likened this earlier before we started recording and I loved it. So I'm going to repeat it. Um, that you said that they're like a couple in high school that would be screaming at each other and then they'd go outside to fight and you check on them in a minute and they're just making out. Yeah. It's very, um, it's giving me, you know what? This probably is not the right parallel to draw, but I was going to say it's very much giving me F. Scott and Zelda. You know what? No, that's fair. <laughs> that's completely fair. Um, yeah, because they're the same way. That's the thing. Is, Apparently, allegedly. Well, okay, we're kind of skipping. I'm realizing that we're skipping around because if anyone's listening to this and is willing for the whole movie to be spoiled before they even see it, great, thanks. But um, Robert Downey Jr.'s character is not Damon Bradley. She assumes that he is because he somewhat lies and tells her that he is because he finds out from Kate that that's who she's looking for and that is who she's in love with. And he falls for her the second he sees her in a very romantic um scene and so he kind of pretends to be Damon Bradley his real name is Peter so we'll be talking about him as Peter um but he has that same level of obsession and fixation that she does so she's fixated on this you know somewhat fictional entity he's a real person but he's not really she's developed him in her head in a lot of ways um she's fixated on Damon Bradley Peter is fixated on her the second he sees her and they act in similarly destructive ways. Yeah, because I mean, you you have her who's obsessed with um, this idea of what true love is supposed to be. And I think I agree with you that she doesn't really have a three-dimensional understanding of what she thinks she wants, but um, there's this scene where she's watching this romance movie um, with Kate, who's played by Bonnie Hunt, and she's, like, drooling over it. She's, like, this is beautiful. Like, don't you think this is beautiful? This came out of someone's experience, and Bonnie Hunt says, I think they came out of someone's imagination, mm. and so it's, like, and I was, like, damn, that's a lie, but I think, yeah, because Kate functions totally as um, having a little bit more of a cynical view, because she's in a pretty unhappy marriage, um, very validly unhappy marriage with Faith's um, brother. Yeah, with Faith's brother. And so you have Faith who's super tied down to this idea of storybook romance, of Hollywood romance. And you have Peter who is in the same way, but is more fixated on her than the idea of the romance itself. But he's very much projecting it onto her and they're kind of projecting onto each other which I think is kind of interesting because- also, Sorry. No, yeah, go ahead. I was just saying they also both believe in destiny, which I think is interesting because mm -hmm. like we talk about, I don't believe in destiny. You don't believe in destiny. I believe in something romantic, but on the whole, I feel like not that many people really believe that in soulmates and that they are destined to be with the one person but they both end up believing that in a way because she obviously does that's kind of like her entire point the entire film um mm -hmm. but Peter at one point starts going off about how he wasn't supposed to be in Italy that weekend someone canceled someone got sick 
he's a shoe salesman he like he's it's yeah, a very a weird foot thing going on yeah there's a lot of foot stuff happening uh tarantino but i know i was really thinking of like tarantula it's like Quentin Levine and shit. <laughs> um but he yeah he starts going off about how he weirdly ends up in italy which i can't imagine i would love to be a shoe salesman who's able to take trips abroad to italy but, I would love to end up in Italy. Yeah, that's the real <laughs> end goal here is end up in Italy and be wearing the Marissa Tomei red dress, red lipstick, and yeah. just do it. I bought the red dress for the listener. Peyton already knows this because I went off about this, but I bought a, a copycat of the Marissa Tomei red dress. So now all she needs tuned. is a ticket to Italy. Yeah, now if anyone wants to fund my trip to Italy, that would be Live your amazing. only you, Lizzie McGuire fantasy. Oh my gosh, what a good setup, both of them. <laughs> but anyway, it was also, like, was that they yeah. um, they end up both very much believing in destiny because he starts telling her, I'm supposed to be here and I'm supposed to meet you and we're supposed to fall in love. And you know, my atheist ass is like, according to who? Like, yeah, not that. Um, but so they're both, I think that ties into like you were saying, this mutual obsession, this mutual belief and maybe in a more optimistic way like mutual trust they both trust yeah. that they were supposed to be there and eventually that they were supposed to end up together yeah the movie definitely takes sort of this stance thematically and I think shows both sides of this idea of whether or not storybook romance is even romantic because I think the way that like Faith and Peter think about it is like romance is something that happens to you it comes to you naturally and you don't have to work for it but then it's kind of contrasted with um Kate and her marriage which is like kind of falling apart um and she thinks her husband's cheating on her which is never confirmed nor denied I don't think he is I think he's just like a piece of shit because he's on the phone with her like a little teenage boy saying you need to come home right now because my friends are coming over and you need to make us sandwiches or else I'm going to be so embarrassed because there's not going to be food here as if um men can't put toppings between bread themselves um they can't Peyton they don't know how apparently. yeah it takes it's a the lot 90s. of mechanics. they haven't learned yet <laughs> where do we keep the butter knives <laughs> um tearing apart the kitchen in a panic um anyways um but there's this idea that sort of Kate's character is kind of cynical. She has a lot of like little one-liners in the movie where she's watching this romantic movie and she like staunchly does not believe in it. And I think it's kind of, you know, tied into that projection of her own relationship. But also she has this line where she says, I married a liar. Why? Because I married a man. And it's like, Ooh. damn, okay. Napping over here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then she kind of has this little love affair fling more of an emotional love affair than a physical one because like nothing really even happens between her and this man named Giovanni but he's like booing her and he's you know caring for her in a way that her husband clearly is not but she should have ended up with Giovanni I know he was so smooth he was laying it on thick yep um but this whole tangent is to say that there's this very dichotomous sort of representation I feel like of not having to work for romance and that being what makes love a beautiful thing or having to work with it or making it work despite its challenges and that being why love is a beautiful thing and this overarching question of 
obviously storybook and Hollywood romance is not realistic, but is it even romantic? So I'm interested in what you think about that. I mean, I think the way that I see it is, it is not work to be in love with someone. You don't have to work to fall in love with somebody, but you have to work to be in a relationship with somebody. And I think that that's what is kind of lost in Faith and Peter's um, setup is that it's this idea that you're not supposed to work at all. If you're in love with someone, that's that. You're in love with them and now you're together and it's perfect. And it ends in an interesting way because it ends with them on a plane kissing quite romantically moments after he had his feet up with his shoes off on the plane seat in front of him which was right red horrifying. again the feet <laughs> thing like what is going on who does that also um but it ends in a very romantic way it ends with you know this pink sunset and the plane taking off and all that so Again, it does maintain that level of cynicism, but even in maintaining that, Kate ends up back with her husband at the end. He comes to Italy, or as he calls it, Italy. There's a scene where he genuinely is like, (laughs) what's Kate doing in Italy? Like 50 times. (laughs) Um, Probably my favorite scene in retrospect. What a good (laughs) use of that man. But um, it ends up veering like all rom-coms to an extent, especially rom-coms set in the 90s to this yeah that you end up in love everything that will work out will and I recognize Mm -hmm. I'm kind of contradicting myself and my views on love from the beginning but that's not realistic is that everything will just work itself out there has to be a level of of work in it because even okay when um I'm blanking on his name when Larry Kate's husband comes to Italy to get her um (laughs) There's no, I mean, did I miss this? Is there no real reconciliation or is it just the fact that he came to get her that was like the romantic part? He comes to Italy and then is like, what are you doing here? And she's like, you came here to ask me that. And she's like, still mad. And then he's like, no, I came here because I miss you. And then they hug and then they move on. Really? And she thinks that he's cheated on her. Like the whole movie, she's like, I think he's having an affair they she doesn't ask him once it's not addressed once it's just like he's like I miss you and then she sort of like just falls back into it and I get it's probably because the movie's about Faith and Peter but I loved Kate's character I think she deserved a little bit more elaboration um I always forget how great Bonnie Hunt is I like I can never keep up with it and I was just staring at her the entire time she was serving maybe the most even though everyone in this cast is really hot but I, I do think, arguably, if we wanted to give Kate's character more agency, which I do, because she deserved it, um, that the reason that she didn't say anything about the affair is because she knows that she had a bit of an emotional affair with Giovanni. So it's like it's evened mm-hmm. itself out in her head. But still, that's horrible communication. He, when he's, um, <laughs> there's another scene where he's talking to, I keep calling him the, the podiatrist. I don't know his actual name. Um, I think it's Dwayne. Dwayne, there it is. What a name. Um, I know of all the names, it's Dwayne Dwayne and Larry. But when Dwayne (laughs) and Larry are talking, Larry's like, of course I didn't cheat on her. But there's no communication because the whole time she's certain that he is, um, which we also don't know necessarily why she's certain that he is. We just know that he's an asshole. But yeah, he ends up there and she kind of, I think, is leaning on the fact that, okay, I did an emotional thing with Giovanni so maybe we're even but in his mind he's like I never cheated on anyone so he's not even thinking about that so I think that that is another example of just bad communication and 
expectations in relationships? Yeah, it's very rooted in the idea that romance is passive, um, which I do think that, like, I agree with what you said, that, like, you shouldn't have to work to, like, fall in love with someone. I feel like that's sort of the passive part, but it's maintaining a relationship that takes work because you don't get along with anyone perfectly ever, especially when, you know, emotions run as high as they do in relationships. But I also think there's a scene in the very beginning, we kind of have talked loosely about Dwayne, the podiatrist, but we mentioned that he's pushy and they're at their, what I assume is like their engagement party and she's going around, she's showing off the ring. And then Dwayne's mother comes up to Faith and was like, I'm so happy that you're going to be wearing my wedding dress. Yikes. And Faith has no idea what she's talking about. And it's because Dwayne told his mom that Faith would agree to wear the wedding dress. It's an ugly ass dress, by the way. It's an ugly ass, not even 80s, like high, low hemline, puffy sleeved wedding dress. And so she's trying it on and she's like, I've decided it's romantic because... I'm wearing the dress of the woman who I forget the word she used it was something funny but like the woman who like held my husband in her womb essentially so I've decided now that it's romantic when it's a choice that's been made for her which I feel like is sort of like this very fantastical storybook romance like the woman's role is to be wooed and swayed and passive but I mean I'm very much reading into reading into the idea of traditional storybook romances in a way that I don't think um, the film is taking super seriously. But I thought it was interesting because it's like her, a decision has been made for her and then in retrospect, she decides that it's romantic. And I feel like that's kind of how it works a lot with projecting romanticism on your circumstances in retrospect because you're so in love with them. No, I think you're completely right. I feel like um, I'm, I'm always kind of caught between thinking that, yeah, it was the nineties. These movies are frivolous. Like that's the whole point and thinking, no, like these are serious stories. They're just not treated very seriously once they're released and discussed. I think that it is a serious story. We are talking about someone who, I don't want to use the word delusional because that's not fair, but there is a level of delusion and she is forcing herself to feel like she's in love and, um, not to sound too self-serious or too whatever, but she deserves to, you know, be, examined in that way not just as this kind of like 90s um like kitschy sort of movie character but Mm -hmm. I think you're completely right like the way that she approaches love is I can make it work and that's her whole Mm -hmm. relationship with Dwayne and that's kind of the problem is that she's trying to make it work but it's so fragile that the second she hears the name Damon Bradley she's like cool I'm going to Italy I'm gonna find him and her friends are like what the fuck like what do you Mm -hmm. mean you're going to Italy And even the idea of going to Italy is something that I love because it's so romanticized in film. I mean, it's got such a deep history of American movies, American romances set in Italy. Some of them are alluded Mm -hmm. to in Only You. But I find the fact that she's not actually romanticizing Italy, but it's once she's in Italy and she meets Peter and stuff that it starts to feel romantic because thus far they they're in where in Italy are they they're in Rome right she starts in Venice oh she's in Venice but she meets Peter once she gets to Rome yeah okay um 
but all of that doesn't seem to sink in and that level of, you know, Italian romance or romance abroad, which is a whole, you know, kind of escapist thing. I think before Sunrise came out the year after this, and there's, you know, there's like a myriad of movies like this, but that idea of escaping and that being inherently romantic isn't set in until she's actually able to look beyond this idea of Damon Bradley. Because up until then, she's not even, if that was me, I would totally be romanticizing the fact that I'm in Italy looking for my soulmate, but it doesn't feel romantic. It feels like work because that's how she's treating it. Right. There's definitely a, a trope in American romance movies of going to Italy or Europe in general. And I think it's interesting. And I think that this movie kind of dives a little bit deeper into the idea of why Italy in Europe is so romantically attractive, more so than other movies where it's more of just a setting. And I feel like you get it a lot through Giovanni's character when he's talking with Kate and he's like, you got your Americans are so focused on work all the time. Um, Cause I think they're out to lunch and he's like gonna go take a nap or something. And she's like, well, I'm at work every day, all day. And I don't- Bragging about it. Yeah. And like he's like, well, that of. sounds fucking dull as hell, but <laughs> it's like, um, he's like, yeah, in America, you guys care about work, work, work. It's what you do. In Italy, we care about like beauty and pleasure and love. Which is like, I mean, I'm not from Italy, but it's true being an American, like that's, and anyone being a person alive right now knows that America is entirely a capitalist nightmare focused on work all the time. Mm. And so it's like, where does romance fit into American culture other than as an ideal and as an idea and not something that you even can have the time to strive for? Well, that's exactly it is that the film it doesn't explore it too much because then it would just dive into I guess a, a different genre or different mm -hmm. subgenre or something but it is that idea of you have to get away and escape America to find this level of romance all of these films where people fall into this level of you know unconditional love and they meet the person they're meant to be with what they really have isn't just pretty monuments in Italy and good food and all that is that they have time and you never seem to have time in American movies they never have enough time to carve out for another person everyone's hustling everyone's busy especially rom-coms are especially set in New York so there is this hustle mm -hmm. culture and this work culture that is super pervasive in the rom-com I mean how many stories are structured around you know journalists or yeah uh, writers or just a job where you basically are constantly just trying to make ends meet and trying to make it work. And then you try to fit romance into that. And that is kind of what makes the film tricky. And what makes it difficult is that you're trying to put romance where there's no space for it to really exist. Um, but that idea of going to a foreign place and having pretty much all the time in the world, she's got until what Tuesday, she's got four days. It mm -hmm. feels like forever, but she has four straight days of, not thinking about work, not thinking about her fiance or her life abroad, she's able to just fall into the rhythm of Italy, which again, it still is a romanticized Italy. Giovanni's a good vehicle for making it sound like paradise, but there are a lot of ways in which it's, you know, the inherent capitalism of America that has kind of put this mindset in all of us that we need to be productive constantly and that 
taking a break or taking out time for things like romance is frivolous and it's a waste of time and it's not going to do you any good. When in reality, that idea that you can't fall in love with that system over you is interesting. Yeah. And they, yeah, they definitely bring that up, which I thought was something I really appreciated about the movie was kind of giving reason for the significance of the location instead of it being purely aesthetic, I thought was kind of cool. But um, I think also just to tack this on, America aesthetically is ugly. Yep. Like, like Italy, it's America's, first of all, America as we know it, like colonial America essentially, is too new. You know what I mean? Everything is concrete and glass and super like what's the word I'm looking for geometric there's nothing it doesn't nice brutalist architecture everywhere exactly it's very um brave new world um where Europe obviously is so much older there's so much more art artistic and architectural history that just makes it aesthetically more pleasing to look at it's easier to romanticize a place like exactly you can't romanticize america and when america's tried like when they try to romanticize america it's romanticizing metropolitan america it's always new york or los angeles or chicago or seattle and it's it's cities and like you said earlier always revolves somewhat around work and jobs and the hustle like la la land is literally as much a romance movie as it is like capitalist workforce nightmare and i mean think of how la la land dancing and like the fact that they don't work out why don't they work out you know what i mean i don't want to get into that much but like the reason that they don't work out is because of their respective career paths and that i think is kind of if you really get into it it's sort of a devastating thing to be mm-hmm. like, all of these romances could be remedied <laughs> if we weren't so fucking busy and so obsessed with making money. But we yeah. also have to be obsessed with making money. That's not really our fault. Um, yeah. Gotta yeah. live. Yeah. Um, I can't talk about this movie. Oh, do it. Without mentioning it. what might be my favorite part, which is Billy fucking Zane. Billy fucking Zane. I love Billy Zane in the most non-dedicated passive way. I don't think about Billy Zane often, but when I do, it is with affection. And I have this list, this movie to add to my list of iconic Billy Zane um, moments in my mind. And I have to say, has to be one of the greatest character entrances I've ever seen is um someone going hey Damon like I'll see you later and it cuts to this shot of Billy Zane with like Jesus length hair rising out of a pool in slow motion with the most like himbo like little cock in his hip and little himbo-y smile it's amazing it's a moment like as far (laughs) as cameos go I feel like contractually He's just got something in there that's like, my cameo has to be the fucking best. Like, no one can do it better than me. Um, It's worth noting, if anyone, you know, is listening and hasn't seen this, um, that he's playing 
Damon Bradley, but he's playing a, another fictionalized level of Damon Bradley, which again, we could probably get into, there's so many layers of who yeah. Damon Bradley is that when they meet the real Damon Bradley at the end, he basically doesn't exist. But back to Billy Zane, what a moment, like truly, I remember seeing him before I first saw the film, I remember seeing him on the cast list and he was billed very highly. Mm-hmm. Like, cool. So like Billy Zane's in this. And then I genuinely forgot that he was in it because he doesn't show up until the last act. Like he really doesn't show up for the first hour and a bit. And it's a short movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to the point that when he does, you've forgotten that he's been billed and it's like a true treat. Yeah. So you've seen this movie before, obviously you picked it. I watched this movie for recording this and saw Billy Zane like high on the cast list. And at one point I was just texting Saffron while I was watching. And I was like, Billy Zane hasn't showed up yet. And I swear to God, if he is Damon Bradley, I'm going to lose my mind. It was so funny. And then literally as soon as there's this shot of this girl being like, I'll see you later, Damon. I was like, it's going to be Billy. I was like, I just know it's going to be Billy. He's wearing, he has this like curly, Jesus haircut which you find out later is a wig when it gets ripped off in one of the most shocking and hilarious moments of film in history I literally yelled when true the wig cinema. got ripped off true cinema um he's always wearing white there's a point where he has on like a little white vest and white pants combo but they're ill-fitting he's like a goofball He's literally a goofball. His role in this movie is to be a goofball Damon Bradley until you find out that he's not Damon Bradley. But no, I think Billy Zane is just something to be mentioned and appreciated and coveted. Um, Cause I mean, I when I think of Billy Zane, I think of Titanic. I think of him running into a sinking ship to try and shoot Jack and Rose. But I also think of him as a predatory professor and the roommate and that's Billy Zane to me. That's the thing is he's so, he feels so culturally relevant, but like you said, and not in an offensive way, but in the most passive way, like no one I Mm -hmm. think is sitting down and being like, Ooh, Billy Zane. But when he (laughs) shows up, you know, that things are about to get really good or really bad, but in a good, he's a great character actor, amazing character actor. And we should put him beside Stanley Tucci. And I'm not going to apologize for saying that. You know what? No, you said what you needed to say. And I will back (laughs) you a hundred percent. No one can fuck with us on this. Yeah. Give him his accolades. <laughs> but try me just, about Billy Zane. The Please, fact try me. that she totally leans into it. Like he's got the act. Can we talk about his accent? Sorry. The <laughs> accent in this. Uh-huh. Absolutely batshit. But she totally, Faith leans into it instantly. She's like, oh, is that Damon? Cool. He's hot. Like just the, I think that that is not to circle back too much because I know we're kind of veering the end of this but the fact that she's so willing to just fall in love with kind of whoever is Damon because she totally falls in love with um Peter as Damon and she's like making out with him it's very steamy they're very obviously you know into each other and the second mm-hmm. that he says I'm not Damon she's like hey fuck this and she leaves and she basically forgets that she had all those feelings or represses them And then as soon as Billy Zane shows up, she's like, cool, that's Damon now. Like that ability to just attach that fictionalized persona to whoever it needs to be attached to. Yeah, I do think it's fair to say that 
she has every right to be upset with him for lying about who he is. Oh, totally. Um, Cause he's like, when they meet, like, he's like, who are you looking for? And she's like, Damon Bradley. And then he just looks at me and he's like, I'm Damon Bradley. And that's sort of when their romance starts. And it is very, um, like a very quick romance. They fall in love. It's very steamy. But like, as you said, he said, he admits that he's not Damon Bradley and immediately she has every right to be angry, but then she tries to also sort of negate the feelings afterwards. And then when she meets Billy Zane Bradley, um, <laughs> Billy Zane Bradley, um, she meets him and he's like this ultimate himbo. He's like, I love action movies. I don't like the opera. He's pronouncing like all these Italian words, like horrifically, he's goofy but she's trying so hard to be in love with him. But you can see she's not feeling it, but she's like, but this is Damon Bradley. I have to feel this way. Um, and then interestingly, it turns out, like we said, he's not Damon Bradley, but he's been hired by Peter. He's someone that Peter knows to pretend to be Damon Bradley and turn her off. And instead he ends up feeling her up very inappropriately. And that's kind of like the whole thing just sort of dissolves. And that's when we get mm -hmm. Peter punching him in the face and ripping off his wig, which 10 out of 10. I mean, come <laughs> on. I think his real name is Harry or something. Is it? Yeah. Which is just funny. I don't know. I don't look at Billy Zane and be like, yeah, Harry makes sense. Well, I feel like even the implication of the word hair in that name is kind of fucked up. Just making fun of male pattern baldness. Yeah. It's very disrespectful and problematic. It's okay. I can get canceled for this. If I have to go down <laughs> for something, I can go down for this. It's okay. If this is the hill I have to die on, it's that only you is anti-baldness. <laughs> um, but for the first time in Thirst Watch Pod, we think this movie's sexy. Very sexy. So let's talk about it. So... In the last two episodes, we have listed the unsexiest moments because to be fair, the episodes were about Quills and Don John. <laughs> and if you can actually come up with like 10 to 15 sexy moments in those movies, please do contact us. I'd be very interested to know, but we couldn't, um, but we could for this. So Peyton, you ready to rapid fire some of these sexy moments? Let's go. Okay. Marissa Tomei teaching a philosophy class about romance. The resolved quickness with which Faith ditches her fiancé for Venice. Peter yelling in Italian while chasing after Faith with her missing shoe. Bonnie Hunt's leather skirt. Faith and Peter doing their best Gregory Peck impressions in front of the mouth of truth. Marissa Tomei in red. The red dress lip combo with the gold hoops was sincerely unfair. Bonnie Hunt's hair. Peter kneeling at Faith's feet to put her shoe back on while giving her absurdly sexy eye contact. I rewound this part twice. Faith and Peter <laughs> in their unintentionally matching beatnik garb. Peter twisting a towel around his fist again while giving her absurdly sexy eye contact. The scene where Peter brings Faith heels for her date with fake Damon. The way Faith pulls Peter's head up by his hair. The cultural implications of the line were a little bit strange. The way Robert Downey Jr.'s hand is big enough to cover over half the width of Faith's back. And Peter decking Billy Zane in a wig. Robert Downey Jr.'s wispy decolletage. Hot. So that's all we've got for today. In our next episode, we're heading to the 90s for a carjacking comedy of errors. Stay horny and smart. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.